Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good morning again, church. Morning to our friends and guests that are with us today from near and far, those that are sleepless in Seattle. Sorry, Art, I couldn't resist. We're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, and it begins, And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Father God, what an important text. May you give us eyes to see, ears to hear the great and wondrous things and truth that we find in your word and in this gospel, Lord God. Greater you and greater your works. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be a pleasing sacrifice to you today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. And we said, you may be seated. I'll just say now, all of you are great. All of you are great people. You're, you're just great. Is it appropriate to even call all of you great like that, you think? Um, I'm going to give you a new acrostic, a new acronym. It might be new for some of you. For some of you that are observe the sports and entertainment world, you've heard of it before. G-O-A-T, GOAT. Who's the GOAT? Who's, uh, right? You know what that stands for, right? Greatest of all time. Right? There's a big debate about that. I'm looking at John. He's a sports fan. And Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Is it Tom Brady or this one or that one? Who's the greatest actor, greatest film? You have all these lists. And I remember we used to play with that at home when the kids were little. Make your greatest list of whatever, you know, the case may be. And so we bandy that about. But I have to tell you, in the literal sense of the word, the meaning, there's no one really great on earth. Even if you're a superstar athlete or a famous CEO or some actor, you may be comparatively better than others in some form or fashion, but great, mega great, really? And, and listen, just saying that, that's a tough truth to say in this celebrity-obsessed culture, because we're in a culture where people love to recognize, if not admire, those in the society they think are great. You know, it takes me back to the uh, quote attributed to the former boxer Muhammad Ali, who said, quote, it's hard to be humble when you're the greatest. Right? And it can be if that's what you think. It really can be. So one problem with the word great is like the word awesome, the way it's used today, where it's really lost its meaning because it's used so often for so many common things. I think both words have been diminished, really. And there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to debating greatness and the goat, because ego and pride 
is the root of all sin in one way, shape, or form. And it comes in the root of this lesson here we're about to partake in as we're joining the disciples of Christ in what is probably the living room of the Apostle Peter's house, and they're going to enter into a debate about the goat, who is the greatest of them of all time. Because what happened is Jesus took the disciples from Mount Hebron, where they had this Mount of Transfiguration experience, remember? And they're preparing to make their way out of the region of Galilee one last time, because they're going to be heading to Jerusalem. And again, Jesus is focusing his ministry on the 12, the training of the 12. That's his mission in the home stretch as they arrive in Capernaum, which is where Peter and Andrew lived. And that was kind of like their home base headquarters at the time. What Jesus has done is he's finished two years of public ministry throughout Judea. He's been fulfilling his calling, manifesting himself as the Messiah, the Son of God, and before every size crowd, small, medium, large oftentimes, now the focus is preparing the 12 and his true followers for, her, for his departure, for what's going to come. I mean, even his healing we saw last time where he cast out the demon, very violent demon spirit out of that young boy, um, looked like a singular act of compassion, and it was that, but it was also a means of teaching. It was a lesson. It was picturing the lessons of the power of prayer and faith. We talked about that. And he's given them a bunch of lessons on this tour here, the final tour through Galilee about the new covenant and true righteousness and compared to what the rabbinical Jews had been teaching and their traditions. And then there was this provision of God, the feeding of the thousands. That was a lesson in itself. And he gave them a glimpse, a preview of his second coming glory. And then in the rest of chapter 9 through chapter 10, we're going to see him teach some really interesting lessons. We're going to get into some really interesting stuff about marriage and divorce and true repentance with the rich young man. But here, there's this new session in the school of discipleship with this remedial lesson of sorts, and then it's going to move into another one, but they're interrelated. So we're going to break down the text into three parts here. And the first one is humility and sacrifice. There's a humility and sacrifice as a lesson here. Look at, again at verses 30 and 31. They went on from there, passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he's teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him. When he's killed, after three days he will rise. You know what the first thing that struck me in reading those two verses? Why didn't the Lord want anyone to know why they were there for this lesson? And I think it's pretty apparent it's TMI for the crowd. It's just too much information. Because this is a private teaching time, an intimate time for the 12. It's a prophetic message he's already given them once before, last chapter. Mark, Matthew, Luke. They want us all to know that this is the second of three times Jesus gives this prediction of his death, burial, and resurrection, which is the gospel good news of the events that took place. Okay? And so three times, three chapters, over and over, because he knows they're struggling to get this. To understand in particular, we talked about this, the suffering and the death of the Messiah that he had to go through in order to save sinners before he would return to rule and reign like the Davidic king that he is. Intellectually, emotionally, that's hard for them. And I'll tell you, we can sympathize with them if we think about it. 
Because this bit of news runs contrary to all this rabbinic Judaistic teaching they had been receiving since they grew up up until the time they met Jesus. And in fact, in Matthew's account of this, after hearing the news again, it says, and they were greatly, there's that word, greatly distressed. Not a little distressed. They were greatly distressed at this news. Think about it. They've been on the mountaintop literally with Jesus. Three of them saw his glory, right, the inner circle. They've been witnessing, participating in supernatural, miraculous signs, wonders. They've heard the wisest, greatest words, yes, ever spoken by anybody on the planet. They've come to learn their rabbi and master is not only the Messiah, long-promised Messiah, but they've actually confirmed via Peter, he's the son of God, and they still can't handle the truth that he's going to die and he's going to leave them even though he says, I'm going to rise from the dead. He's trying to teach them here, humility involves sacrifice. Because they're probably thinking to themselves, we're talking, who's going to deliver him into the hands of men? Is it going to be one of us? Which it would be. Judas of the twelve. Could it be a Gentile? Could it be a Roman? Some other kind? Person? They may have already started to think, hey, if Jesus dies, what happens to us? So this, hearing this news is inconceivable to them. They just can't digest this news. And no wonder, then, the, the prediction is given three times in a really short period of time. You know, it's like the person, think of it this way. It's like the person that's in the doctor's office or in the hospital, and you hear the news that your loved one is terminal, and you're told they will soon die. Right? You might process that intellectually, understand the words, the concept, but it's so overwhelming, the news is so shocking, you can't handle it, you can't bear it. You don't believe it. And by the way, that happens today because the atoning death of Christ is still an issue for people, including the Jews, even after the cross and the resurrection. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and is folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. Right? God dying in the flesh? Really? I mean, you think about the gospel message. We live because Christ died. We can have victory over sin because Christ became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5. So without the Spirit of God in your heart, you're not going to totally get this. Those kind of concepts. So we might understand why Jesus tells the Lord, even shelters these guys on how he presents this. Luke chapter 9 in the parallel account there, verse 43 says, they were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Get this. But they did not understand this seeing the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So the Lord is actually sheltering here his disciples. He's spoon-feeding them a little bit at a time. They don't get the total significance of this gospel prediction. 
It's only giving them what they could handle. They're baby believers, like we call baby believers. The New Testament calls them milk drinkers, right? Like infants. Their faith is like a child's. I mean, they were living in pre-cross Judaism. They don't even get the concept of connecting Jesus to the cross yet. So verse 32 says in our text, but they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. So it's kind of like, look, we don't know what you mean by what you just said completely, and we don't want to know anymore. Let's just move on. And so they do to the second part of the lesson, which is interconnected, from the humility and sacrifice to the humility and attitude, beginning in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Discussion. They had a discussion. But the Greek word there is where we get the word dialogue from actually is more of a debate. They're having the goat debate. They're arguing. And so Jesus' question is really rhetorical because he knew their hearts like all those people he dealt with as the Son of God. Or they were really high talkers and he just heard it. One or the other. And this is really a teaching method to expose them. You can relate to this. It's kind of like, you know, when you have children. And you know what they've done, but you ask them the questions anyway. It's like when God asked Adam and Eve at the fall, he asked them four questions he already knew the answer to, which were, where are you? Uh, who told you you were naked? Did you disobey me and eat of the tree? What have you done? God knew what they did. This is a form of interrogation. It's a line of questioning meant to make the person think and to bring some conviction to the conscience, which is something like what Jesus is doing, questioning the disciples, right? And, and by the way, talking about kids, how we question them this way, this is one of the reasons why in our new family worship night coming up, we're going to dig into the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a question and answer catechism, a way of teaching with questions, okay? And it worked, by the way, too. I want you to see verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So he asked them the question, but there's no answer. It's crickets from the 12. Why? Because their pride was exposed. Without them even confessing a word, they knew. And after hearing the Lord's prophetic words about what is to come, what is going to befall them when they get to Jerusalem, believe it or not, they had a debate amongst themselves about which one of them was going to be the greatest, the greatest apostle. Mega is the Greek word for great there. And its derivative word can even be translated as the stronger one or the more mature one, like an elder. And you know, I could see this. Peter in the inner circle, we don't know for sure, but it's likely there was this idea where, hey, me, the sons of thunder, the bros, we were on Mount Transfiguration. Where were you guys? There could have been some of that. That would have made some sense. Could have led to some jealousy. I mean, there were 12 apostles, and Jesus has set aside three, the inner core of disciples, Peter and brothers James and John. And that's a big deal for a Jew at the time. I mean, really, really big deal because they were all about rank and privilege. In fact, in the book of James talks about the early church still was going through this problem where they were giving preference to the greatest among them in terms of seating among visitors. 
pastors and members to the congregation and the poor were getting like, you guys just kind of get over here somewhere. And they had to straighten that out. And that is an issue, by the way, that went through centuries of church history, even through the Puritan age, where those that gave the most got the best seats, even with their names on them, in the pews. So it's always been an issue. And this is crazy, though, that people can get to this point. Because they just heard again Jesus is predicting his death, and before the body is even cold, they're arguing who is the goat of their group. Verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Anyone would be first. That would be first in rank, recognition, and then he must be the lowest in rank, last of all. Then he must be a servant. You can translate that original word as a minister as well. New American Standard puts it this way, if anyone wants or even desires to be first, he shall be last. It's just another one of the paradoxes of our faith. It really is. You might remember when we were summarizing the life of a disciple in the message, the call and cost of discipleship, we quoted from that great Puritan prayer. Oh, I said great again. Um, that very good one. Valley of vision. And it goes like this. Part of it. The way down is up, that to be low is high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite, broken spirit, is the rejoicing spirit, then the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess everything, and that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, and that to give is to receive. And the Bible takes it further and says, you want to live? You have to die. You want to find your life? Lose it. That's our memory verse, right? You want to be strong? You have to brag about your weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. And as the text is telling us here, if you want to lead, you have to serve. So that truth, the attitude of humility from the Lord is repeated throughout the Gospels, and it's a uniquely Christian concept, folks, moral ethic, it really is, because most leadership models if you study them traditionally, especially secular ones, they're authoritarian, top-down, right? Leaders are ego-driven, they're fed, they love to exercise power, be recognized, receive praise, prosperity, all of that. But Jesus taught something else. Here and on the night of the final Passover together, which was the first Lord's Supper, he taught what this is about. I want you to see this in Matthew's Gospel in another parallel passage in verse 20, because Jesus is the architect, folks, of the servant model of leadership. If there was a Christian bookstore to go to, brick and mortar, uh, brick and mortar, you would see that there's all these leadership books, the leadership of Jesus, or Jesus as CEO. And they kind of pull from here, Matthew 20, in the middle of verse 26, says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's a radical statement today. It really is. God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. You know why Satan fell, right? Pride. It was the same idea. He wasn't humble. He was not satisfied with being a uniquely made, powerful, beautiful, angelic creature that he was. Believe it or not, that wasn't enough. Why? 
because he wanted to be like God. You get that in Isaiah 14. It's kind of like, sorry, Satan, only one of those. Satan was humbled and he was cast out. So the same night of the Passover, Jesus modeled humility as they came into the room. What did he do? He washed their feet. That was the most humbling job a servant could do in a domestic home at that time. He reminded them of it. And he drew the contrast, the styles here, when he was at the Lord's table. I just want to read from Luke 22. The same idea and a little kind of a different nuance, starting in verse 25, where he says, the king's of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. See, that's a big statement because the youngest were always subservient, inferior. So he's saying that, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So normally the guest of honor would re recline in the best spot at the table. And Jesus is saying, no, I serve at the table. Okay? The mission and the ministry of the Messiah throughout is one of humble, sacrificial, loving service to the point of death to save his church. And you pick that up Back where we're at in Mark, the summary verse, kind of the one that's most often quoted in this gospel, actually comes up at the end of chapter 10. You're familiar with it, I'm sure, verses 44 and 45. We should read it today, where Jesus said, Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for he served to the point of shedding his blood, giving his life as a payment to free sinners from their slavery. That is humble, loving, sacrificial service and attitude to the max. Therefore, tough part for us is he's our example and he's our model to do the same. And I'll show you probably in what is the most applicable deep, theologically rich scripture on this issue that comes to mind. Go there with me, Philippians in the second chapter. It's a familiar text, and I'm going to read the passage from verses 5 through 11. So you get the whole glory of this passage as you read these words. If you ever want to know what humility is defined by in the Bible, what it looks like, it's here on a practical basis. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, understood, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the greatest. Okay? 
the goat debate is over. The only goat worth acknowledging as a goat in that sense of that acrostic is Jesus Christ. But I want you to go back to verses 3 and 4 of that text if you're still in Philippians 2. How do we do it? What does humility look like for us? I mean, I'm not Jesus. It's a tough ask. Verse 3, Paul says, To the church, he's writing these Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in what? Humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's like saying, in a sense, love your neighbor, care about them as yourself. See, the truth is when we humble ourselves, God's going to exalt us in due time. So humility, in other words, means having the right view of yourself. Seeing you as yourself in the mirror as God sees you, who is a sinner, you are a sinner saved by God's divine, sovereign grace and mercy. So you understand that. And then you can more freely give of yourself to others. That's how we're like funnels of Christ's likeness to the world. So God honors, he blesses that kind of humility, that sacrificial love and attitude. It's really church life. And I'm thankful we see so much of that at Christ Community Church. Like Paul wrote in Romans 12, 3, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Look, a Christian doesn't look to be a superstar. We look to be a servant. You know, we installed our new deacon last week as a leader of servants. And he's a brother that has been exhibiting the humility of sacrifice and attitude and unity for some time. And we're also called to be servants in a similar way. In fact, you can ask yourself today before you leave the room, after fellowship time, during, what ministry of our church needs help? What are my spiritual gifts? Do I know what they are? And how can I plug them into the life of CCC? Where can I serve? What can I do? Because everybody can and should do something. Every member should be a minister of some sort. And we need to be reminded that we demonstrate our love of God for one another according to the Gospel of John by humble service and attitude. That's what makes us different from the world, folks. We don't serve others to get something, to be rewarded or praised here and now. We do it to please God and then show and share Christ. And several of you manifest that in your heart. And you serve in more than one area, by the way. We appreciate you for that. Because, in fact, I want to say forgive us if we don't praise the Lord and thank you enough. Wish we had more. Every pastor says that. though. But I am talking... Maybe to someone who's been a member or regular attender of our church for some time, any significant length of time, and they haven't yet volunteered to serve in the ministry. This might be a good day to do that. In fact, it is a condition, it is an expectation of membership in the church, what we call our commitment to fellowship, right? Members give of their time, time, talents, and treasure. Therefore, before we go to the final point here, I want you to see two quick things about humility. Service that we're talking about is a mark of humility. 
Service is a mark of humility. Take you to the Lord's words in Matthew 23, verse 11. He said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know what it looks like? Humility looks like John the Baptist in contrast to these apostles in this debate. What did John the Baptist say when Jesus comes on the scene? I must decrease so he must increase. That's the idea. It's an emptying of ego because you see the big picture of the kingdom and the cause of Christ. Donald Whitney, an author, we study it here in our church about spiritual disciplines. He wrote this book with these questions pointing to humility. He said, this is really practical. Can you serve your boss and others at work, helping them to succeed and be happy even when they are promoted and you are overlooked? Can you work to make others look good without envy filling your heart? Can you minister to the needs of those whom God exalts and men honor when you yourself are neglected? Those are pretty heavy questions, right? And I know, listen, that's not easy. But by walking with, being filled with the Spirit, it can be done. Here's the second thing I wanted to say about humility before we go to unity. Seek humility. Humility is something we can go after. And I'll show it to you with the parable of the wedding feast, which is also in Luke's Gospel in chapter 14. Jesus, here's the picture. He's been invited for dinner at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And remember what I mentioned about these parties they would put him in the place of honor. Big time custom in Israel at the time. And the Lord says this in Luke 14, beginning in verse 7. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, he's like a for instance, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so then when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of those who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, it's like he's saying, okay, this is the number one spot here to sit. He's like, you know, if you sit there in this pecking order, they may bump you to sit in the back. So he's like, here's a good thing, a humble thing. When you come in, sit in the back. They see you back there and that humility, they, then they may invite you to come forward. That's a whole lot better. Interesting. God says this about the heart truly seeking humility. If you seek it, you'll find it. The middle of Isaiah 66 too. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So there's some doing there. Humility comes as we're filled by the spirit, but there's conscious decisions, as per Paul, Philippians 2, to look at the interests of others, put others first. I'm going to give you a couple of quick things as practical strategy about humility. Okay? The first one is the means of grace, which I just touched on. You want to be more of a humble person, have a really good godly prayer life, a life in the Word, and a life of worship. Those are the ordinary means of grace. And here's another one. It's hard to be prideful 
when you look at the cross, right? Romans 5 tells us, God demonstrated His love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's something. Look at the wondrous cross, that rugged cross. Here's another one. Count your blessings. Remember I said last week, talking about prayer and faith, it's hard to be depressed when you're always giving thanks to God. It's harder. And that engenders humility as well. If you're going to boast, which is the opposite, that's exalting oneself, the Bible says there's only one thing to boast in, basically, and that is the cross. The cross of Christ, what He did for you. Because you did not secure your salvation. In fact, in the book of James... There's an interesting passage. Here's another thing to do, to think about in terms of humility. You know how we tend to think of ourselves in a kind of a subtle way. I can go here. I can do this. I can do that. Tomorrow I'm going to go here and make a profit or sell this. That's what James chapter 4 is talking about. And then he says this in James. And he says, don't boast about tomorrow. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, a mist or a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Acknowledge, recognize the sovereignty of God even over your day about what you're going to do, what your plans are. Submit your plans to the Lord in prayer. Right? That's a humble thing to do. That's part of what it means to count your blessings. Now, here's the rub all in all this, though. Humility can be sought, but it can never be celebrated. The day that you say, you know what, friend, I'm a humble person. You're no longer a humble person. You've just made a prideful statement, in essence. So we've seen humility and sacrifice, attitude, third and lastly, in humility, in unity, unity. And what you have here, this passage, these two little verses, they're going to introduce a truth that we're going to get into, get real with and expound next time. But let's look at it. Verse 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he, Jesus, said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Talking about the father. A child here, the word literally means a small child. It could include a newborn. And this passage says so much about God in so many different ways, especially his love for children in and out of the womb. Because right? if you follow the life of Jesus, he's found so often around, talking about babies, children. It's really remarkable. You know, our Lord Jesus was the model of family integrated church here. I don't know if you see that. Because he's walking, he's talking, he's teaching. Children are close by him, and he picks up one in the middle of the room to demonstrate this truth as an illustration. He's not segregating the little kids from the adults and his disciples. In fact, in Matthew there's the time where the disciples rebuked some parents for bringing the little children to Jesus for a blessing. 
And our Lord said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say, you know, they're a bother. They're crying. They're fussy. Thanks, disciples. If you just take them to the children's ministry, nursery, that'd be good. Park them there. No. He says, let them come. But the main point is, why is a child a symbol or a picture of humility and unity? Because it's a little parable he's telling here. And that is the small child represents, get this, all of the children of God over the history of the church. You say, how so? Well, the Lord said, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. For such is a comparative phrase like, like this. All right? Jesus is saying we need to receive whoever God has received. To understand how... Christians are like small children, get this. You have to understand the lowly place children had back in ancient society during biblical time. To be a child at that time was to be considered the lowest person in rank in humanity. Because little children, let's face it, when they're really little, they don't achieve or produce anything. Right? They're often seen at that time as inconvenient, regarded more as property, more than people. It was understood that they were maybe to be seen, but not heard. So a child in the Bible, though, is different. Culturally, children are a symbol of innocence, helplessness, vulnerability, right? A small child cannot feed or care for themselves, right, until they mature. They're totally dependent upon their parents. They look up to their parents for help, wisdom, and knowledge. What is that picture? You and me when we first came to Christ. You were a child in the faith. So the analogy that Jesus is trying to make here is we need to receive, humbly accept, and that word accept from the Greek has the idea of welcoming someone, like you're throwing out the welcome mat to embrace somebody into the family, which here is the believers in the church, the community of faith. And thankfully, CCC has that kind of reputation. For those of you that have been here and stayed any length of time, and as a member, you've told us, hey, as a new visitor, a new believer, I felt welcome here. This feels like a community of faith. It feels like family. We're known for that. And I think the reason is, is because we receive people with a humble heart. We receive them like they're one of us. So, this is kind of like a shout-out to church unity, too, which we're going to get into more next time. But wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if the church would love one another like God loves little children? Wouldn't that be great? I think we're on our way. So as I close, I want to end the message again where we started. Let's talk about the goat, the greatest of all time. Right? You know where we're going and who is the greatest of all time. And that's really the third practical strategy of just seeking and attaining humility. Admire greatness when it's really in front of you. It's in front of you in the pages of this book, and it's in front of you in your heart as you digest it and in prayer. The single greatest God and human being at the same time that's ever walked and talked on the face of the earth is Jesus Christ. And the more you look at him and talk to him and hear from me, him, the more humble you will be. It's just that amazing paradox about Jesus, the Son of God. He is the only perfect combination of self-centeredness in his teaching 
and the ultimate selflessness in his life. I mean, think about it. In thought, he put himself, his mission first, but indeed last. He exhibited both the greatest, most perfect self-esteem and the greatest self-sacrifice at the same time. He knew himself to be the Lord of all, but then he became their servant. He said he would one day come to judge the world, but he also washed the feet of his friends. I mean, that's greatness. Jesus is the perfect God-man in perfect love and perfect humility, and we should prayerfully strive to be as much like him in humility as in everything else. He is our model. And folks, that's at the end of the book of uh, the chapter of Romans. Some say the greatest chapter of all time, Romans 8. But you have been saved and redeemed, predestined, called, justified, sanctified, glorified for a purpose. It is to be conformed to the image of God. And that happens in Christ Jesus. The reason you're living and breathing and sitting there right now is when you walk out the door, you start to look like Jesus a little bit. That's the whole ballgame. That's it. It's everything. The reason you're here is to leave this room and Monday through Saturday look like Jesus in some way, fashion, or form as much as possible. And that includes humility. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your perfect example of love, sacrifice, and humility that brings unity even amidst diversity of your people and your church. We love you. Words cannot express how great you are and worth admiring, celebrating, recognizing, worshiping, and obeying and loving. You are without a doubt the greatest. And help us to worship and recognize that more and more. And Lord God, salvation begins with humility for if someone does not confess their sin, admit that they are worthy of judgment as someone who is unredeemed, may this be the day that they humbly would confess their sin, make a commitment, a turn in their heart to turn from it and to turn to you, to deny themselves, to pick up a cross to follow you to save their life by losing it, by believing in Jesus as the only one by faith who has forgiven all of their sins. I pray that someone does that today if they have not done so already and that they would now understand that's just the beginning of the Christian life. From there, they would be baptized as a believer. They would commit to the fellowship of a local church body like this one and they would commit to serving, to being a servant, as you so perfectly modeled, in the body and in showing and sharing Christ to the greater community. We pray these things, Lord. May the work of the Spirit be done in Jesus' name. And we said, Amen. Amen.
Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.com.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 